Hey everybody, Andrew Easton here, and this is our 30th episode, which is crazy to think about, and I just wanted to take a moment from the top to just say thank you to everybody who's uh, tuned in over the course of these 30 episodes as we've tried to communicate some of the uh, great ideas, stories, uh, to, to build up some of the great leaders uh, and initiatives that have been a part of education in Nebraska over the course of the summer and this fall semester. Uh, and certainly outside of that context as well. But uh, it's been really fun putting this show together. And so thank you to those of you who have uh, tuned in faithfully and listened. This week we do have a different type of episode for you. And I do appreciate it because it showcases the type of professional development that people within our ESU network have access to uh, on a regular basis and speak from uh, as they go and support administrators, teachers, different schools and districts. And so this week's pod comes to you from an hour-long Q&A conversation that the TLT group within our ESU network had with Catlin Tucker, who uh, is an author who's written on the topic of blended learning in multiple books. Uh, She's been a great thought partner for us, both at the start of the semester and with this hour uh, check-in. We'll continue to learn from Catlin over the course of this year and beyond. And so, yeah, this episode was a Zoom Q&A. I got a chance to kind of lead that, which I was really grateful for. And so within this hour, there's a lot of ground that gets covered with regards to remote learning, uh, whether you want to call it concurrent or high flex. Uh, learning situations where you have some learners at home and some learners at school. Uh, And just generally speaking, the the concepts that Catlin addresses do have their place both within the present circumstances and obviously could be then applied to how we start to think about our work in that new normal that we may enter post-pandemic. So I hope you enjoy the conversation. Thank you so much for tuning in over the course of these first 30 episodes. Happy holidays to all of you, and we uh, look forward to our continued collaboration into the new year. Welcome to the Good Life EDU podcast presented by the Nebraska ESU Coordinating Council. I'm your host, Andrew Easton. Thanks for joining us as we discuss the latest in digital learning across Nebraska and around the country. Peg, do you want to do kind of the introduction piece? I'm more than welcome to, and I'll kind of keep admitting folks, and we'll get started here as it is 3 o'clock. Yep, no problem. We're excited to have Catlin Tucker back. Um, July, oh gosh, whatever it was, last week of July, I believe, we had two mornings with Catlin, and many of you were there, so I'm so glad you're all back, and so I would just like to welcome Dr. Catlin Tucker with us, and it's really going to be a question and answer session. We have some that people submitted ahead of time, and Andrew's going to facilitate this conversation, but if you have a question, you can pop it in the chat or just unmute and ask. Welcome, Catlin. Thanks. I'm excited to be joining you guys today. Yeah, and hopefully be a little bit different from some of the Zoom sessions where, like I said, we're going to try to keep this pretty informal. We're going to have the opportunity to just kind of uh, ask questions either in the chat, uh, as Peg said, or we'll just kind of pull number one off the top here. Um, And so, Catelyn, what strategies would you recommend in the hybrid model in particular? Is there anything that's gone particularly well? Um, can you define what you mean by hybrid? I think one of my biggest frustrations in this moment as kind of a person guiding training and professional learning around this is the references to blended, hybrid, concurrent, simultaneous, and I'm just like never quite sure. And I don't think people <laughs> always know, like the ones I'm talking with exactly. I just read a whole thread about a, what is blended learning where I was like, oh my gosh, I totally disagree with <laughs> what, how this is being defined. Um, so I didn't know if you mean hybrid, like they come to school a couple days a week or whether it's that concurrent classroom scenario. 
Yeah, I think it's a, or even, gosh, high flex is even a term I've heard thrown out there too. That situation where you're going to have some students live and in person in front of the, the teacher, uh, and then also those remote learners, whether that be a hand, small handful that it's situational or whether it's intentional where the you know, school or district has moved to kind of 50-50 in-person attendance. Yeah, so I've been calling that the concurrent classroom, which is really the idea that you have kids in a physical space and you have some virtually who are joining. And you're right, it is actually an adaptation of what is called the high flex model at post-secondary. There isn't a tiny bit of research about high flex. There is next to none in the K-12 environment for that kind of a scenario, which makes guiding teachers in this moment, very challenging because there's not a bunch of research to pull from. There's not a boatload of best practices to draw from. And so, um, but there are definitely things that I feel like as a coach working with teachers in this scenario have helped make a really tough teaching assignment manageable. The first thing that we do when we're designing for that experience, um, when I get to as a coach with teachers is we talk about bookending every single lesson. So the value of training, and I really use the word training intentionally, training students that like when you come to class, there's something for you to do the moment you sit down in a physical room or you enter that virtual classroom. So beginning every single class with a welcome task. And it doesn't have to be the same kind of activity. Um, they might wanna use a bell ringer and do some retrieval work or some um, spiral review, or maybe they want to pique student interest on a topic and give them a creative writing prompt, or maybe they want them to set a goal for the week and think about how they're gonna work toward it. I mean. It doesn't have to be this like, oh, we're doing this again, right? This exact same activity every day, but it is like maybe 10 minutes at the start of class, you sit down and boom, you access the welcome task, whatever that welcome task might be. And part of why I like that is just a very simple start to the class is, you know, when kids come through our physical door, they get a hello or a wave or like, a, like an acknowledgement of like, hey, we're glad to see you. I don't think online kids are getting that same thing as we furiously admit them into the Zoom room or whatever platform we're using. And so it creates some space where one, we can intentionally welcome those kids so they feel like valued members of this community. Like, great to see you, Raul. Oh, hi, Samantha. Um, and then they can get started too. We can handle those administrative tasks. So it's not like we lose all those minutes in that shuffle at the start of class and kids feel a sense of security because they have a routine. They know exactly what's expected. And then I also encourage teachers to end with some kind of exit ticket or exit activity. And I think those are great for collecting formative assessment data, like how effective was this lesson, encouraging just kind of some feedback from students, like what did you enjoy about today? What was challenging? What questions do you have? Um, just something to kind of create some closure at the end of class. And then any last minute things we have to do as a teacher, we have some space to get those done. And then in terms of the design work for like the meat and potatoes that like middle section between the welcome task and the exit activity is really thinking about how to structure that so that hopefully teachers can focus on one group of learners at a time. That is something I hear teachers lamenting all the time. They're like, it's chaos. I wish I could just focus on one group at a time. And so that's where I've been kind of onboarding teachers with a modified or simplified version of a station rotation, which I just call a flip-flop. So there's two stations, there's the teacher-led experience, and then there's the online or offline alternate station. And so I'm working with teachers around, okay, if you break or divide that time in half and you focus on 
first your online kids, again, because if we focus on them first, depending on the requirements for that synchronous time, maybe we get to release them and they can work asynchronously on the other station and the exit activity. Um, and then once we've had a chance to work with them, we can focus on the kiddos in class because there is also a real inequality in teacher attention, obviously, where, you know, if kids in class can yell out or ask questions, they're always going to command more of our time and attention. And so by separating the groups and having one group focus on something while we work with another, we're able to give our time and intention equally to the two different groups. So those that simple welcome and exit routine and then thinking about structuring that uh, that time in the middle with that flip flop, I think can be really effective. Well, I'm going to go off script here then too, and then ask a question as a follow up to that. Is there ever what situations have you seen then where those groups interact, right? So if we're talking about kind of breaking that down, is there uh, any utility to having your in-person learners zooming with their counterparts at home or is that I've seen teachers try that most of the teachers I've worked with who are doing that are doing that because they have like three kids in the physical classroom and everybody else is online it's not an even split at all and so what they're finding is to make the kids who actually are in the class feel connected to more students they're doing these mixed groups where one group is composed of in-class and online students and then the other one um, is composed of in-class and online students. The, ch the challenge, I think, and some of the concerns I hear about that is, um, one, everybody has to have a device in the classroom and remember to bring their own earbuds for sound issues, echoing, that kind of, just those, those things that can just throw a whole lesson off the rails. And second, you do have a lot of kids just staring more at the screen when you're joining them online. Now, what I do like about those mixed groups is, breakout rooms, right? You can form smaller groups of learners within those mixed groups where they have that collaborative virtual space that's easy to send them into so they can chat and they can work on things together. So, you know, I think there are benefits and kind of drawbacks to both. I think logistically, it's easy to start with an in-class online split. And then teachers, once they get a little confident in that design, then they can kind of play around with maybe adding a third station or mixing groups. Yeah, and it kind of really segues into our next question pretty well in that within those strategies and, and whether that's kind of the beginning and end, as you said, or the meat and potatoes portion, what tools have you found to be particularly helpful in facilitating some of the strategies you just shared? You know, I I have a whole recommend, bunch of recommendations when it comes to specific tools. I mean, I, I think a lot of a lot of the conversations I've had with teachers is also about like, what do I do online versus offline? How do we create those breaks from the screen? So whether it's that those bookend activities and thinking about, do we want to engage kids at the start of class on a digital document or with a Google form or have them handwrite something or just be mixing it up um, versus when they're in those, uh, the flip-flop stations and they're working online, kind of where I think the biggest challenge and the biggest area of growth in terms of what I'm seeing with teachers is, are we creating shared virtual spaces online where kids can be doing things together, not just a breakout room, but also thinking about, you know, really leveraging the Google suite and Jamboard and Wakelet and the Padlets of the world to try to get kids in places where they don't feel quite so isolated. All right. Well, then the next question, because I kind of jumped through the first couple for us, it pertains to engagement in either that concurrent or remote setting, um, particularly with those students and, and their families who maybe struggle to stay engaged. And so finding ways to 
potentially make them feel connected and promote that they consistently are part of the experience, I think. Yeah, I the lack of engagement, I, you know, teacher engagement and student engagement are very reciprocal. So when teachers feel that students aren't engaged, it hurts their own engagement. So it's this really tricky puzzle. And whenever I talk to teachers and ask them like, hey, how would you describe a successful learning experience or online learning or blended learning or in this hybrid model? Um, they're always using some form of the word engage, engaging engagement, right? That's really important to them. Um, yet often in the design and facilitation of lessons, teachers right now, because everything is so fluid and everything's so unfamiliar, there's a lot of like real gripping that control piece and a lot of fear around kind of this teaching in this moment. And quite frankly, the more we kind of tighten our grip on that control, that can actually have like a really negative impact on the learner's desire to lean into the learning. And so I think one of the things I encourage teachers to do is to be really transparent about the why. Why are we asking kids to do something? What is the value or purpose? And I think we have to be aware that for those kids online, there are parents in the background, right? They're listening, they're soaking things up and they benefit from knowing why their kid is being asked to do this as well. Um, I was just having a really interesting conversation with a gentleman who, you know, the teacher had encouraged the parents to like point out sight words. And the parent, you know, the teacher had had a conversation with a parent who's like, I don't know why I'm doing this. Like, what, like, what's the purpose? And the teacher hadn't made the connection between like how that was going to help students become readers and do all these other things. And so it's just easy as the, the educational experts in the scenario, we're making decisions that are informed, but we might not be making that transparent to students or, or their parents. So they really understand what is the value of this work they're doing. I think another piece of it is really prioritizing student agency in the design of the kinds of activities we're asking kids to do. Like, where do they get to make key decisions about their learning? Where do they have that choice or that voice in an assignment, right? If they just feel like they're getting a series of handouts or digital documents, it's easy to get a little disillusioned with that. So even if it's just something as simple as hey, here's a choice board that aligns with some of the standards that we're focusing on for this mini unit. And I'm going to be driving you to do some work off the choice board, but you're going to get to select kind of the, where you spend your time and energy. That can just go a long way with kind of engaging students. I, I also think for those learners who are learning from a distance at home, can we give them a break from the screen, right? For little ones, can they go in the backyard and make observations and draw pictures? Can they engage a family member in a conversation about a topic and, and jot down some notes or draw some pictures? Like, how are we, I mean, this is every day, all day is really tough. It's tough for us as adults who are learning this way. It's tough for kids. Um, and so I think that piece is really important. I also think we just have to like put ourselves in kids' shoes right now. There's like a lot going on in the backgrounds of their lives. And are we thinking about what would be high interest? What might drive curiosity for them? You know, whether um, it's kind of you know, engaging them in like a student-centered inquiry with the 5E's instructional model, where maybe they craft their own questions that are related to the topic of whatever unit we're in, but really speaks to something they're curious about. I just, those, they're not like super hard to do, but I think in the kind of the frenzy of designing and facilitating learning for this moment, which is really challenging, some of those pieces get a little lost. 
And so what have you seen then in terms of how teachers are finding ways to support in those two spaces? And so I love like the choice board example, right? So let's have them kind of have some agency pick some different avenues through which to demonstrate their, their understanding or mastery. And how then, particularly in that concurrent, because I've seen people with headsets uh, and, and utilizing devices differently to be able to be someone that, that the at-home students can reach out to and also be there in person. It's, it's a challenge no matter what, but have you seen anything kind of innovative in that realm? The most exciting examples I've seen is teachers. Okay, so let, let's start with what I'm seeing most frequently, which is oh my gosh, this is so intimidating. I am just going to rely on a bunch of teacher talk and handouts. And unfortunately, that's that's happening in a lot of places because I think teachers are just like, oh my gosh, I'm so overwhelmed. Like, I am just going to explain this and I'm going to give them some practice and then I'll try to answer questions. And at the end of the day, the teachers don't feel like they were super effective. The kids in different learning landscapes weren't particularly tuned in. Um, the teachers I've seen have the most success and, you know, these are few and far between, but they're folks who are using things like a playlist or a hyperdoc for the week, right? Where the kids are making progress, the, the playlist or hyperdoc can be slightly modified for kids who are ready for some next level challenge, some who need more scaffolding. And then the teacher's mentality is, I'm value added, right? Like I, every time I interact with a kid, it's to add value to their playlist, to add value to this hyperdoc I've designed. So I am going to spend time doing some one-on-one -on -one coaching. I'm gonna dive into documents and give some digital feedback. I'm gonna have conversations with kids. So it's really about, I, I think one of the, the really important shifts that I would love to see teachers making in this moment, and I know it's a big ask, It's because it's more about mindset, right? It's about what do we value in terms of our work? Do we value, do we see our value as teachers in being those experts, right? Or do we appreciate that the real value we bring to a classroom is actually in our connection with learners? And so do we design lessons that position us as an expert at the front of the room for long periods of time or do we design learning experiences that allow us to engage in this human side of teaching in this connection with learners? And so I think it's the teachers who've kind of started to appreciate that, that part of their work that's so valuable and design in line with that value that are having the most success in this moment. Because they're not trying to race through curriculum. They're not trying to cover it all. They're like, there's just no way. Instead, what I want kids to do is to feel supported seen and connected to me and this learning community. And in the midst of that conversation too, and this, this next question, I think comes at a good time then grading, right? So, so we kind of have the need to establish that why, and we start talking about the things that you were just sharing there, right? In terms of we're here to make connections. What, where does that grading piece fit in the middle of that conversation? Honestly, Andrew, I feel like grading Grading should be an assessment, should be opportunities for connection. And that's not how most teachers think about grading or students think about grading for that matter. Um, grading is something that like happens to kids. They don't have any agency over it. They just receive grades and don't feel like they have any control. I think that's problematic. I think that over time that really hurts in their, their motivation and their desire to engage. And so for me, you know, I've been pushing this. I mean, in my last book, my entire first chapter is 
problems with traditional grading practices, like problems I think exist in those grading practices that I've experienced as a teacher now that I see as a coach. Um, and I worry that actually, especially that mentality of, well, if I don't give points, they won't do it. And so now we're just like the Oprah Winfrey's of points, giving points to everybody for everything. Cause we're just trying to like entice them to just show up at a zoom call or whatever. And I'm just, I don't think it's a good idea. I think it promotes this mentality of, oh, this is a Pac-Man game of point accumulation instead of this is about learning and skill development and growth and all these other pieces that I think are where we all really want the focus to be in a classroom. Not why did I get these points, but how can I develop these skills? Like that's what I want the conversation to be. And so, you know, I share a workflow all the time with teachers where I'm like, here's how I would allocate my time and energy as a teacher. Like it's a workflow I finally adopted after I decided that I didn't need to be the Oprah Winfrey of points anymore. Um, and so if kids were like reviewing or practicing a skill, no grade, no feedback. And that doesn't mean nobody's looking critically at that assignment or that work, right? If they did practice and review, maybe I'd give them an answer key and give them time to check correct, capture their questions, or maybe they produced a short form piece of writing and I give them an exemplar, like a really strong example and a simple rubric. And I'm like, okay, compare what you did to this one and then fill out the rubric and just write a sentence or two about why you gave yourself the score you gave yourself. Um, so it's about teaching students to think critically about their work. And then, you know, if the, if kids are working, if the, the purpose of work is work toward a product, but they're in the process, then my job is just feedback focused, actionable feedback as many times as I possibly can during that process. And I think that's another piece of this conversation about mindset is, do we value the work we do giving feedback as much as the work we do explaining how to do something, right? Because I think more value is placed on the initial instruction and not necessarily on supporting that process. But it's when kids take an idea or a strategy and try to apply it, that they get stuck, they trip, they fall, they make mistakes, they need feedback in order to improve, just like a coach gives feedback to a player. So, you know, that's my focus there to put the value on the process. And then if the work is a finished product, if it's an assessment, then they get a grade. Sometimes that's paired with a rubric, right? If I'm using a rubric to grade whatever this is or assess it, but no feedback. You know, I'm not going to give feedback on a finished product unless they request it because they want to act on that feedback and improve that piece. So I just think there's a whole bunch of um, shifts that need to happen in terms of like, what am I grading? Why am I grading it? How is it impacting my ability to find balance as a teacher? How is it impacting my students' perception of what's valuable in this class? And right now, I just worry that our current situation is actually exacerbating a lot of the the problems that make me nervous about traditional approaches to grading. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I'm going to actually ask Otis Pierce to come off of mute as he had a question as a follow up. So following up on that, Catlin, you know, those conversations are in, in times that we're seeing teachers have very deep seated. This is the way I grade. This is the way I do it. Um, where do those conversations need to start? Is it at an admin level? Is it a classroom level? How do those conversations get started about changing those for those that are like, I got to give, and, and of course it all goes back to eligibility to play. We got to put three grades in during a week, you know, all those things. 
how do we kind of start those conversations to break that grading cycle? I think what you're saying about the leadership piece, Otis, is really important. Like, not that admin has to drive this whole thing, but I'll tell you as a person who shifted to standards-based grading and overhauled my entire approach to, to grading by myself in my program without the support of admin or an entire institutional shift, it did feel like I was swimming upstream against all of these different forces that are at work to keep the status quo in place. And so if this is something that is valued at a leadership level and can be articulated at least at first on an, at a leadership level and then turned over to teachers to discuss in departments, PLCs, like how do we go about it? Because a, an approach to grading in math may look very different than an approach to grading in an English language arts class. And I do think that some of those you know, minimum requirements of grades per week become kind of the feeder of traditional grading practices also. So I've done a lot of work with um, districts like in Texas that have pretty rigid, like you have to have six numbers, six assignments per week or something in your grade book. So one of the things that I do when I work with teachers who are in that scenario is, you know, maybe I'm grading a paragraph that students have written, an argumentative paragraph, on a topic, or maybe I'm grading just the abstract they wrote describing a lab or whatever. Um, maybe I, as I look at that piece, I'm likely drilling into specific skills, or at least I hope I am, right? And so maybe I am going to assess the, the quality of a claim and textual evidence, or I'm going to assess the quality of a claim and the, the analysis. What I keep telling teachers to do is really drill into specific skills that you're that you're going to be assessing and then enter each of those skills separately into a grade book and not only does that address some of this issue around oh i have to have x number of grades because in a single assignment maybe you have two or three different grades that come out of that separate um kind of entries into a grade book, but I think it's also better for kids and parents right if I dump a lump sum oh you got eight out of 10 on your paragraph that doesn't tell anybody anything about really what went well in that paragraph and what didn't. If I say, oh, you got a, a three out of four on your claim, but you got a two out of four on your analysis, like now it's clear, like, okay, I'm doing all right with claims, but I really need to focus on my analysis. So I think part of this grade conversation or part of what I would like to be part of this grade conversation is really also thinking critically about what we're grading and how we're going about that. And, and I'm a big fan of more of a standards aligned approach. I think it creates a lot of clarity about what we're grading and why, and also makes sense for entering those pieces separately into a digital grade book. Yeah, thanks for that. Yeah. Um, another question that was posed, and this is really, I think, so we're not tone deaf to the moment, is, it, uh, is there a different approach that coaches should take with educators who are made to go remote versus those that chose to teach remotely. Do you mean in the coaching, like adapting the coaching cycle, or I don't know if you can clarify a little bit, like um, what do we mean by approach? I'm not sure if someone that wrote the question would like to do the follow-up there. To, as I read it, it, it strikes me that just in terms of maybe being sensitive to the educator's disposition about being in that space uh, and trying to maybe get them in the mindset where they're able to approach the work with a growth mindset and a positive attitude as much as any of us can at this moment we can say that too right well i mean i don't know that this the you know my messaging doesn't really change it doesn't matter like who i'm working with i'm definitely always pushing kind of some of these mind shifts 
that we've already talked about. Um, thinking about our value, kind of questioning why we're doing what we're doing and how we're doing it. And I think for the person who didn't elect to be teaching online, who is, um, yeah, I think, I mean, coaching at its core is about relationships. And so being empathetic and being sensitive and, you know, as coaches, we get tired, we get burnt out too. It's easy not to be the most patient when people are, it's constantly that, like, I just want to spend this time with you griping and trying to like, okay, well, let's be a problem solver. Let's figure out how to like move through this moment. Like I know it's challenging, but you're in it. So let's, I want to support you. Um, I do find that for like one of the best ways to kind of shift the tide in those moments with those folks who are just so frustrated. This is not what I, this is not why I signed up to do this work is to come prepared with real resources and strategies that feel like value add for that teacher, right? With, with teachers who are like, okay, I chose this. Like, I'm, I want to figure this out. I'm, I don't know the word excited. I don't know if anybody's like really excited right now, but um, for my like more game teachers or go getter for this particular teaching landscape, I want them to do, again, like students, more of the cognitive heavy lifting. So I want to give them like a, you know, complete idea. I want them just generate it and participate, like co-create with me, at least in the early stages of coaching somebody who's in a situation that they just feel like, oh my gosh, I don't even know where to start. Then I want, just like a teacher, I want to scaffold that more for them. I want to I come to the table with some examples and ideas, and then we can modify those. So hopefully they can have some supported successes that then we can kind of build on. Yeah, kind of that coaching, collaborating, consulting differences in how you exactly. come around in those supports. Um, uh, another question uh, was, and I don't know, Peg, if you want to answer this, I'm guessing this might've been yours in the balance of blended learning session from last week, uh, touch upon your comment. This, this individual had seen that. Was this you, Peg? Yes, uh, Catlin, I, I have not read your latest book. So I was really intrigued by your, your presentation last week that I got to take part in. But the, one of the slides that really struck out was you were kind of talking about all the things that happen um, in a teacher's day that happen outside of the work hours. And I just wondered if you would touch on that because it's how do, how do they balance it and how can we encourage our teachers? Yeah, so what Peg's referring to is just to establish, not that anybody needs to be convinced that balance is really hard to achieve in this crazy profession we've all dedicated our lives to, but, you know, when I start thinking through, you know, just teachers' responsibilities in any given week, right? Everything from attending meetings to designing lessons, facilitating lessons, giving feedback, assessing student work, communicating with parents. <laughs> and it's not an exhaustive list at, by any stretch of the imagination, but then you start putting it, them in these buckets, right? Here's my eight to three bucket where things happen during my school day. And here's my four to like whenever bucket, the evenings, the weekends, all that stuff. And you start putting those responsibilities and tasks in buckets, then you're like, oh my gosh, no wonder teachers have no balance. Like the bucket of after your school day is so much more full than your school day bucket. Because in the school day, we're facilitating learning, right? We're taking the lesson we designed outside of this school day and making it a reality. Um, we're tracking and monitoring kids' progress where, you know, we're, we have to give feedback often outside of school. We assess out of school. We communicate with parents outside of school. And so for me, the whole point of that book is to think about how do we lean on blended learning models to start rethinking where this stuff happens and who does it, right? So 
If the teacher is the only person tracking, monitoring progress, I think that's a problem. I think we have to very intentionally start to help students develop the skills necessary to be our partners in this work. And that requires metacognitive skill building. That requires intentional goal setting, time to revisit and revise and improve those goals. It means giving students a, a method by which to think about their work and track and monitor their own progress and think about their growth over time and then own the conversation about their progress with their parents. Like one of the things, I mean, there's so many aspects of this job that I feel like are totally unsustainable, but this expectation that teachers are somehow supposed to keep a hundred plus families abreast of how all these kids are doing, I feel like that's totally unrealistic. And I, I remember, like I was teaching pre-digital gradebook adoption at my school. I remember shifting to digital gradebooks and thinking, oh, thank goodness, this is going to be such a time saver. Like they can just check their own grades in the grade book and like it's going to just be such a nice relief. Uh-uh. I would get parents, I'd put a zero in the grade book and man, I feel like it wasn't five minutes later, I get an email. What is going on? My kid got a zero. And I'm like, um, they didn't do the work. Like, I don't, I don't know what you want me to say right now. <laughs> like, I feel like a zero is pretty self-explanatory. Um, and so it ended up just creating more challenge for me to kind of put out fires and communicate with parents. And so how do we create avenues for students to update their parents about their progress in a, in a timely, regular way? And whether that's high school students learning how to write an email and then CC me and write their parent and use a template to just fill in, like, here's what's going well, here's where I'm struggling, this is what, right? Something simple where the parent gets a little update I think even working with elementary teachers, it's always fascinating. I have such a secondary mind because that's where all my teaching yeah. experience is. But even when working with elementary, like there is research to indicate that metacognitive skill building as early as three years old is incredibly valuable. So how do we maybe put younger kids, whether it's sharing a piece of work and an audio recording inside of Seesaw for a parent audience or sharing kind of a, a glow grow kind of reflection with parents every other week about work they're doing. Like I want kids to own that conversation. So it's really about figuring out where does that happen? Who owns those conversations? What skill building needs to happen to support kids in kind of taking those conversations and running with them, um, pulling feedback into the classroom and making time for it. I just don't want teachers taking those pieces home. I would much rather, if you're gonna work outside of school hours, I'd love teachers to feel free or like they have the time and energy resources to dedicate to the design work that's really so critical, especially in this moment where we're designing for these learning landscapes that feel kind of new and unfamiliar. Go back to the questions here. And I, I would just want to reiterate too, because we have a number of people that have joined um, since we began. And so if you'd like to ask a question in the chat, we would invite you to do so. We'll be sure to give you the opportunity to ask Catlin your question then. Um, but we are pulling also from a pre-recorded list. And so the next question on the list has to deal with video in terms of as a coach, to what degree does video play a role in how you reflect with teachers? Uh, and the question doesn't seem to really indicate whether that's prior to the pandemic circumstances or during. And so uh, if we could honestly just maybe entertain a little bit of both uh, in terms of what, what role that recording the instructional time plays. 
Yeah, I, I think of recording and documenting, not, it doesn't have to be the whole lesson, but like snippets, the, you know, I'm trying a new strategy, I'm doing something different, I want to capture it so that we can use it as an opportunity to learn, I think is a great way to use video. And, you know, so many coaches have tons of teachers they're supporting. So being in and out of classroom for that moment that teacher is trying something new, a new strategy, a new approach, a new model might not always happen, might not always be possible. And so how do we document that piece and use it as an opportunity to reflect? And even in this moment, what's actually been interesting for me coaching teachers right now is actually easier for them to do that because they just press record on Zoom for a snippet of their class. And then we talk about it, right? We'll, they'll either share it with me as a file, be a drive, and then I will type up my thoughts, my notes, my suggestions, my takeaways, or we'll have a follow-up Zoom after I've had a chance to watch it, or even we'll watch parts of it together. And I feel like kind of like a like a football coach. I'm like, let's pause. Okay, let's talk about it. How'd you feel in this moment? Are you seeing the student's response? What's another way we could have answered this question? Or hey, instead of you answering it, could you have pulled another kid in to answer it? So it's more like a, let's use it as a play-by-play -play to talk about what worked well, what adjustments we might make next time if we use the same strategy. So I think, you know, as much as teachers do not like being videoed, it's, you know, I get it. We do all kinds of crazy stuff we don't realize. Every time I watch a video of myself, I'm like, can you just put your hands down? Can you just stop gesticulating wildly? Um, every time I see a picture on Twitter, I'm like... <laughs> doing something crazy. Um, so I know it's outside of their comfort zone, but it is a really great opportunity to analyze what's happening and learn from it. So whether it's in a normal class or, a, you know, an in-class experience pre-COVID or whether it's now where there might be online pieces happening, I think video is invaluable. Gosh, as a son and grandson of a former football coach, I'm just imagining we're, we're putting this thing in on a dial and slowing it down and that'd be <laughs> hilarious. Um, but, uh, but that said, the next question actually plays off of that with regards to what recommendations you might have for everyone in here as coaches. You know, we got one tip there, obviously, with thinking about the opportunity that uh, delivering our instruction virtually provides for us to record um, and to break that into smaller pieces. But uh, the question really leaves it pretty open. So it could be books, websites, virtual training, or yeah, even just strategies of it. You know, I think a lot of, I mean, a lot of my work as a coach has just been informed by best practices as a teacher, right? I realized that the more effective, I am more effective as a coach when I take the strategies that were helpful for me as a teacher and apply them to my work as a coach. And so if I want teachers to use video to capture instruction, to provide direction so they're not constantly repeating directions over and over again, or to model something, to show you know them how to do something. If I want them to use video in that way with their students, then the best thing I can do as a coach is figure out how to utilize video the same way for them. Because in our coaching teacher relationship, they're very much a learner, right? And I can't always be physically, I mean, especially now, we can't be physically with them as much as we're probably used to. So if the teacher wants to try a model or they want to try a strategy, then maybe I create a short video, instructional video that kind of gives them tips and walks them through the workflow or the approach. 
if I, they're going to be doing something like physical or walking kids through a strategy, maybe I model how I would go about teaching that and share the model video with them. If I want them to like, you know, use directions with their kids, maybe I record a direction. So here's how you're going to document the parts of your lesson and share it with me. And this is what you can do if you have questions. And so it's just like utilizing those strategies in our coaching relationship, almost as a model so that hopefully they're like, oh, that was great. I could use video directions with my kids and probably save myself a lot of time, energy, and annoyance as, you know, kids are going to ask a multitude of the same kind of, can you repeat that over and over again, kind of questions around directions. Yeah. I imagine on some level it makes it seem attainable too, by just like being able to experience it. And that's not maybe quite as scary. Uh, Eileen Barks, if you come off of uh, mute for us, uh, she has a question. Hi, Caitlin. Um, so I'm just, I've been hearing over and over at curriculum directors meetings and superintendents meetings and principals meetings that remote learning isn't working. It stinks. It's bad. And there's so much bad press out there right now. I mean, they've just done some, I'm going to put it in quotes, research on what's working for kids. So I know that you speak nationally. Um, are you seeing places in the country that it's working well and what are the components that we can help with the replication of that? Because there are kids that need this kind of, of um, instruction. And there are, I, I've got to believe that there are some kids that are thriving in this situation. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, you're absolutely right. The, the press coverage around what's happening in education is so incredibly negative. And part of me gets I'm furious about it because there's a lot of value in online learning. Um, and who really, if you think about the majority of teachers, were prepared for this moment, right? Very few. So you're judging online, the, the quality and effectiveness of online learning when teachers haven't been prepared. They have not done any work on online pedagogy and strategies and tool utilization. Like, these are, these are, there are people who train to be online teachers and professors because the skill set is slightly different. The tool set is slightly different. Um, and, you know, there is, there is a lot of evidence in the literature to suggest that, you know, some kids, they're going to do better in an online scenario. And a lot of kids are going to do better in a face-to-face -face scenario. So online learning is not for every learner, yet we've all been pushed into this space. And that's problematic, especially for really young kids who their learning is so tactile and experiential and it's social. So I get it. You're a kindergarten teacher. This is like incredibly challenging, right? Because we know that those learners need so many different things um, that we just can't make happen as easily through a screen. And, and we have to quite frankly rely so heavily on the coach at home, whoever that person is, the parent, the caregiver. And we know that isn't always gonna be there isn't always going to be somebody on the other side of that screen helping that young learner. And that's, that's problematic as well. Um, also for kids who have underdeveloped self-regulation skills, they don't do as well in the online learning. So if we have these kids who've been kind of coasting through school, just like checking the boxes or not doing a whole lot, they haven't developed those skills, they are going to flounder online, period. So First of all, I don't think it's fair to like write off online learning as a total disaster. I think the the schools and districts that I that did a lot of work pre-COVID, they did blended learning, they're really diving into personalization. Those are the schools that I think have weathered this a bit better because I mean online learning is a big part of blended learning, but I'll tell you guys. <laughs> 
Nobody was calling me for online learning training prior to March, right? And now I get those requests all the time because it is such a different teaching and learning landscape. Um, and I think there is just a higher degree of control that we have to give learners in that landscape. And that can be great for some learners and that can be really problematic for learners. But I just don't think teachers were or are still really prepared to feel like they can thrive in this environment. I think that's, as all these sort of have sets up our, our next question here with the idea that some students that are maybe struggling in this uh, format that when we end up in what what we might refer to as our new normal, um, you know, after vaccines and something where we're all in person again, what are your thoughts on how we might look to really address the, that learning loss that's taken place? Um, I know it's become more and more prevalent, I think even the national media has a conversation. Uh, so what are your thoughts and ways that we can use blended practices to address that? Well, one of the things I always say when I talk about blended learning is it provides more opportunities to, at the very least, differentiate learning and hopefully work toward a more personalized learning path. So as we have, I mean, I feel like every year I've been in education, just the spectrum of need within a class just gets wider and wider and wider. And now we're, we are gonna have even more kind of diversity in terms of needs and skills and language proficiencies, everything after the situation, right? So we cannot approach learning from a teacher-led whole group lesson design we have to really think about how are we collecting data from students, not just to throw in a grade book, but really collecting data to figure out where they at. Like, are we beginning with pre-assessment? Are we building mechanisms to collect formative assessment throughout the design of our lessons and units and learning cycles? How are we collecting that summative assessment and then using it to figure out how effective this learning was? And then how are we really consistently, at the very least, differentiating learning experiences, practice, scaffolds, and supports for kids who are in different places? Um, and lean on these models to create time and space in our lives, in the classroom, to conference and coach and support kids so they don't feel like I'm never going to catch up. I'm just giving up, right? Because I can't stay lockstep with this group. I'm starting so far behind. And, you know, I've had experiences teaching ninth and 10th grade English where I have kids in my class who are at a second, third grade level reading band, right? Like, so if I just have us all reading the exact same novel at the exact same pace and doing the exact same assignments, those kids, can, they have no chance of being successful. So I think it's really going to be, take a, a, an intentional approach to designing and facilitating learning that just acknowledges kids are in different places. Some kids are gonna need instruction and support on totally different skills. We might have to use different processes to teach different things depending on where kids are at. Um, and then also really you know, thinking about that whole conversation around universal design for learning and making sure that accessibility is at the forefront of our minds. And maybe for a group of learners, they're not all going to express and communicate their learning in the same ways. And are we giving them options how they demonstrate learning? So I think all of those pieces are going to be critical as we enter a post-COVID world with kids who are just in all of these different places and kids who may have been disengaged from the learning for upwards of a year and a half. What do you see as the, the skills, experiences, feedback that teachers are going to take away from 
this moment and and having navigated those concurrent environments and remote environments that might help us step into some of those spaces you were just talking about? I mean, I guess I hope the silver lining now is just a realization that, you know, we can't do everything that we used to do, giving ourselves permission to kind of adopt a less is more mentality and not the kids necessarily learn any less, but we're not scrambling to cover so much. And we're really being intentional about creating these deep and rich learning experiences that are hopefully engaging and relevant for kids. Um, and then hopefully, you know, I've met, a lot, I've met a lot of teachers in my, I mean, I've worked with so many teachers who are, who quite frankly, like had to come to a Catlin Tucker training at some point and just kind of walked in the door like, all right, lady, take, yeah, give me your best shot. We'll see if you can teach me anything I want to do anything with. Um, and have quite frankly, just said, no, I don't want to do this. Like I, the way I do it works for me, you know, and I think there are a lot of teachers who are like, you know, whether they wanted to or not, they're developing skills and they're working with tech tools and they're trying different strategies out of necessity right now that I hope they hang on to as we exit out of the situation. Um, that's my that's my hope. It almost makes you wonder if we have to be intentional as coaches in helping them think about how to transition those back into the in-person in the same way we were trying to do some of those things from the in-person to the remote. Um, but that's just a, that's an aside. <laughs> but, no, but I think it's a good point. Cause I also, I mean, if you think about it, I'm, I'm, I'm learning a lot observing my own children who are very different and we've been online learning since March, right? So they, this is a whole new semester. They've been entirely online. And my daughter's like a Hermione, drop her anywhere. She's going to do fine. Um, when I walk past her door, I also think her teachers are maybe doing a little bit better of a job using breakout rooms and encouraging them to chat. And there's some project-based learning that they're doing. And she's responding really positively to all of that. And I hear chatter English and she's in a bilingual public school. So English and Spanish out of her door. My son like he's very bright, but for him, school, it's social. Like he goes to see people, he goes to be funny and engage his friends in the classroom and they turn off the chat for the kids. They don't use the breakout room because they don't really trust kids in them or they're not sure kids will use the time effectively. So he literally has zero interaction with other kids his own age right now, zero. And I'm kind of trying to imagine like, how does a teacher set him up to get reacclimated to being a an active social learning being in a physical classroom? I think it's going to be an adjustment. That resonates with me because you just described my two kids. <laughs> my daughter's <laughs> the socialite. My my son is the other. And well, and I'll transition with this then. I uh, in my own house uh, have found it's been helpful for us to use a Kanban board. Um, so your to do, doing and done, and my kiddos move their post-its across. Mm -hmm. uh, are there any other strategies that you've seen that have been great for helping students to stay organized uh, and to manage what, what can maybe seem, you know, if you're talking about four or five different lessons or courses that you're taking can be overwhelming uh, to just sort of navigate that independent of, like you said earlier, I show up and the teacher tells me what to do and I do it and then we we'll move on to the next piece. Mm-hmm. And I don't know about your kids, but I finally had to have a conversation with my son because on Monday, like he logs into Google Classroom and there's like 24 assignments, but it's for the week. But he has this like immediate, 
he just has a breakdown every Monday. And I'm like, dude, this happens every Monday. You're going to be fine. But one of the things I shared in my getting started with blended learning course, and I do it with my own kids is, okay, here's your digital agenda for the week. It's Monday. I carve out time, but then this is a parent who sits down. And I carve out time to do this with my kid. Okay, here are your assignments. Let's start to track when and how many you're gonna tackle each day. And if we're looking at an assignment and you have a question, let's put it in the question box for Monday. So you can ask your teacher on Monday about this because you're gonna see her. And it's, I think it's really, again, I think what I'm ultimately doing is helping with time management and thinking through like how I'm gonna approach this work. It's a self-regulation. We also have not, not for school work, but you know, my kids both play piano. And so there's 15 minutes of piano practice each day. There's, you know, they have to, um, there's all these little like household things. There's Spanish reading, there's English reading. There's, there's just these pieces of beyond school. Here's what you need to do each day. It's on our fridge, start time, end time. Like again, just trying so they're not, cause they end up just zoning out, staring at their computer between classes. And I'm like, get off the computer. You've been on the computer all day long. If you don't have to be staring at it, don't do some of these other pieces that we want you to prioritize in your day. It's just, I mean, as a parent navigating this moment while also working from home, like so many other people, it's just been so complicated and challenging. And I realize I'm, I'm not a super patient teacher or person in general, but even less so with my own children. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks. Uh, yeah, for spending a little bit of this time with us. We, uh, speaking of that, are getting really kind of close uh, to our end here. So if you have a question, feel free to add that to the chat. We have our last one from... Uh, the list of questions, and this one is for um, suggestions. What suggestions do you have in helping special education teachers work with students in an online uh, remote setting? You know, I, I have a lot of SPED teachers that I've worked with and support, and some of them are kind of working in tandem with the mainstream teachers and supporting special ed kids who are in a mainstream classroom. So that's been really interesting. But a lot of the work we're doing is actually around carving out time for individual coaching sessions with kids, as opposed it's what the, the special ed teachers that I, special education teachers I've worked with are finding is that even running a small group session in like on Zoom is really tricky right now with kids um, for just a whole host of reasons. So dividing time between kids. And then also like, I think a big part of that support is also keeping the parent caregiver in the loop. And so finding strategies that those special education teachers can use to kind of capture snippets of student progress and quickly communicate those to parents. So parents feel like, okay, is my kid getting the, the supports that they really need to be successful in this moment? Um, what can I, what can I do on my end to support this work? So um, I think those pieces, like finding time to connect with individual students to support them where they're at, especially since, you know, it might not just be academic, there might be behavioral and all kinds of other things happening where those you know, beyond an individual session just gets a little problematic on Zoom. So it's been really interesting for me to try to support their work in this moment because I've obviously never been a special ed teacher. And often when I'm working with special ed teachers, it's been in the context of a, a traditional class setting and how to, how to kind of support learners through that. Um, I've also had a couple that have had to have all their, their kids in a particular group. So like three at a time in a Zoom meeting, and they're actually rotating the kids through almost what feels like a little um, station rotation in through the Zoom rooms with their them popping in and out and supporting. 
it's just tricky. It's, it's really tricky to engage kids online, especially kids that have a whole host of kind of needs. Thanks for addressing that topic. And that, uh, that's the end of the questions that we have. And so we'd really encourage uh, anyone who in the closing minutes here has maybe one more or two more questions that we could address in our time. I'll say this, one of my favorite questions to ask is, what have we not talked about? Or what is something that you, Catlin, maybe feel like is something worth kind of considering or has been at the forefront of your thoughts? Yeah, I think one of the, I mean, we've talked about a lot today, but one of the things that is on my mind, again, coming from a parent and educator perspective is that with all of this online learning, I'm feeling that need to prioritize offline learning. Um, and so, you know, whether it's breaks from the screen or just remembering that, in the, you know, like a big swing has happened and now we're online all the time, but there's a lot of learning that happens that isn't connected to a computer that's valuable. And so whether it's collecting data or having conversations or, you know, doing a simple experiment or, you know, kind of preparing a recipe, whatever. It's just like, I want kids to get a chance to learn where they're not staring at a screen because I do, I mean, like I said, I just see my kids, my own children at the end of the day, they just look like little zombies. And I worry about the impact of that over time. And so for me, you know, people think, oh, you blended learning, you love technology. And I'm like, I value offline learning as much as I value online learning. It's, it's really the blend of the two that excites me. And so I worry that that, that is being neglected in this moment. Yeah. And I think that, I think honestly, the barrier is like, oh, but if they're doing offline learning, like how am I going to, especially for kids learning online, how am I going to see that? Or, you know, and I'm like, okay, let's start training those kids to treat this learning like they're creating a documentary, right? Like that can't be the excuse. We have to figure out how to, you know, empower them to collect little artifacts and share them while they're engaged in that offline learning. Thank you so much for uh, yeah spending this hour with us today. Uh, I know that we really covered a, quite a breadth of topics and, and thank you for your insights across all of those as we do our best to support teachers uh, you know, in this space and, and in the environment moving forward. So uh, I got some thank yous coming to you in the chat. Uh, Peg, would you like to maybe close for us? I would love to. Thank you so much, Callan. We are looking forward to, um, I think we have our last time with you in May and we don't know the date yet. And we'll make sure that all of you know about that, but we wish all of you a very Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, enjoy your break. Catelyn, you too.